All right, welcome to another Stock Talking. Back by popular demand again, fourth time on Diligent Dollar. Check out the blog at diligent-dollar.com, uh, Twitter handle at Diligent Dollar. Uh, Dilly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on again. Anytime. Um, we have a lot to go over. Figured a good place to start would be not the last post you wrote, but one of your most recent I thought was extremely interesting. Um, title is something like Value Traps Everybody Hates. Um, this will definitely get value investors excited, but you're leaning into these. Um, there's a ton. You call it the VTPCC portfolio, which is the value trap portfolio coffee can. Coffee can, from my understanding, is you put it in the can you can't look for a couple of years. Uh, take it out yep. and hopefully it's appreciated. Um, you got a, a, a six names in here from like micro caps to a little bit larger. Some are retail, uh, some are kind of the automobile space. But yeah, uh, I would love to hear in your mind, like why you wrote that post, why you included the names you did. And then has anything changed since you wrote it? Obviously, it's been a couple of months uh, since you published that. Yeah. I, and I would probably back up for a second and just sort of define value trap as, you know, something that looks very cheap optically, but, you know, doesn't grow earnings or is very low return on capital. So it's sort of cheap for a reason. Um, it's sort of like a a 30-year-old car that has 500,000 miles on it is a low price, but does that actually make it cheap? Uh, that's not really, you know, accurate. So that's sort of like what a value trap is. Um, and I, I would say over the past seven or eight years, the, the typical value traps would be a brick and mortar retailer or an automotive supplier, mainly because people are so concerned about the headwinds facing the businesses um, that you know, no one can really get comfortable owning them. Neither of those businesses are necessarily that great. Um, you know, there was a lot of concern about maybe we'd, we'd enter into a recession. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like 2018 or so people were thinking this. Um, and so there, there's no, there's no way I would risk my career owning these names when I can own so many other things. And the point of my post of basically saying like, I'm going to start leaning into these value traps that everyone hates is basically, it's sort of a play on, I don't really think they're value traps anymore. So, you know, from, from one example, I focus a lot on like the automotive, uh, suppliers. So, um, like American Axle or a straw tech, which is sort of a micro cap play. And, you know, I think we, we've talked about this, but so why do I, I think they're not really value traps anymore. Number one, they've significantly delevered their balance sheets. So, you know, part of the problem with a value trap is they can sort of get into a, a downward spiral of, you know, if they're not growing or they're actually shrinking and they have debt, you know, that just completely pressures the equity. That's no longer really true, especially for American Axle. Um, you know, their leverage is sort of at like two and a half times right now, um, generating significant free cash flow. So if you take their adjusted free cash flow guidance for 2021, it's about 400 million. That puts to over a 35% free cash flow yield to the equity. So, you know, it's extremely cheap from those measures and it's actually generating cash. It's not like it's uh, you know, a value trap where you, you sort of look at it, it's a low price to earnings, but it doesn't generate cash. That's not really the case here. Um, the second piece is, I, I think there's a multi-year cycle ahead of us of rising earnings for both of these sectors of brick and mortar retail and auto, auto suppliers. So just keeping the theme with automotive suppliers, you know, 
the past couple of years before we hit COVID, uh, automotive SAR was about 17 and a half million per year. So 17 and a half million units in the US sold per year from around 2017 to 2019. Um, that then dipped below 9 million for a short period of time during COVID. Um, and now we're sort of running at the 13 million uh, annualized rate. So clearly, you know, about 30% below um, where we were running before. Um, and so, you know, you might say, well, we were just producing too much back then. We were selling too much back then. And so that excess supply needs to be absorbed which has kind of happened in the aftermath of the housing crisis. You know, it took a long time for that excess capacity to be absorbed. I think clearly all the signs that we have today are showing that we are undersupplied on automotive. So average age of used vehicles continues to climb. Um, one thing I pointed, pointed to in the post is, you know, like CarMax is the biggest seller of, uh, of used cars. They basically say on their earnings calls, they're, they have... 30% less inventory than they normally would need. Um, Alithia Automotive, which is another a dealer roll up, they're basically reporting 20 days supply of, of cars when typically they have 70 days. So that's basically like a third of their normal inventory uh, right now. That's a pretty big issue, uh, especially when you think about like what's gonna happen for the next quarter. So, you know, there are very large you know, sellers of cars that just don't have inventory. And so if I think about what's going to happen over the next couple of years, one, they're going to need to replenish their inventory to some normalized level. And then they're probably going to want some sort of safety stock, which I just think is going to take a long period of time to, um, you know, normalize itself, given the semiconductor issues that are going on in automotive production. So, you know, like GM closed, I think about eight or nine plants in North America, Ford did the same thing. Um, obviously, if you're an automotive supplier in the US, you have very high exposure to the big three. So I think that you know, has kept you know, some of these automotive suppliers in the penalty box for this year. But if I look out over the next couple of years, I think people are gonna say, okay, there's gonna be a long road recovery back to what a normalized SAR is. Plus we probably need to build over what we were building in 2017 to 2019 just to get you know inventories back in line um and so i think people will start to see like okay there's a multi-year cycle here of earnings growth and that's going to transform some of these auto suppliers from a uh, value trap to okay i can get comfortable and own this for a long period of time so i see a lot of you know the stars aligning for some of these these deep value names where, you know, I'm not typically a guy who's like, oh, low P, you know, should buy it. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about. You know, another piece I'll just say is, this is not something sort of mathematical. It's just sort of my sense is talking to a lot of other investors, um, talking to some of the sell side over the past few weeks before Q3 earnings season. A lot of it was, you know, look, I don't know how bad Q3 is going to be, but I've seen all these headlines. I've seen the shipping costs. I've seen metal prices increase. I've seen the plants are being shut down, port delays, all that sort of stuff. 
I don't know how bad it's going to be, but I just am not going to stand in the way of what the quarter will be. I'm just not going to be there, even though the stocks, you know, had gotten crushed already. It's sort of that, you know, the market's already priced it in, buddy. Like, um, so that's where I kind of saw this really interesting opportunity of everyone, no one can own it because they're so afraid of what Q3 will look like. It turned out, you know, it seemed rel relatively benign. Um, and then, you know, are people going to be caught short, you know, as we head into 22 and 23 and, and earnings are starting to really unfold in a positive way? Yeah, I have a few thoughts on that. And I'll, I'll pick on American and Axel just because I have the chart up. I mean, you talked earlier about a cycle um, and obviously the suppliers definitely are, are part of that. Um, it's interesting when you kind of look at this historically, it's traded like all over the place and, you know, since whatever uh 2015 or so this this is significantly underwater for anyone who's owned it over the last half decade plus um and you hear with cyclicals that you know like you want to own when pe's are actually high as opposed to low um just because if if they're high it's coming off the cycle because the the earnings number there is is quite lower lower than it will be um for american axle like you know people have been burned in this by the past like what makes you think you can call the cycle here or is, is it should you be looking at this in terms of not even thinking about the cycle or how much is that part of the story no i think the cycle is very much a piece of the story the problem was you know if you bought american axle coming out of the financial crisis you know that would be fine because then you know you have the the up cycle coming out and so you know obviously the stock went from about a dollar to 24 in about 2015 but I think 2016 was kind of the start of the period where everyone said, all right, we might actually be close to, you know, the eighth or ninth inning of this cycle. You know, Automotive Star had reached its prior pre-crisis peak. Um, I'm not going to stand in the way and own this thing. So, you know, the stock has, you know, slowly fallen from around 25 to, it sits at 9.50 today, thereabouts. And, when I wrote it up is around eight. Um, and so, you know, I think it's that theme of we're at the peak of cycle, it's got to come off. So no one's wanted to own this thing. The other piece I'll say is uh, American Axle as an automotive supplier, I mean, it does not trade at a high multiple of EBITDA. So let's say it typically trades at like, you know, four times, five times EBITDA, like a very low optically uh, multiple. Well, American Axle historically has been <clears throat> like three and a half, four times levered. So on an LTV basis, you know, four over five, I mean, it, it, you're, you're actually pretty levered. And so the equity is a stub equity piece in, in that sense. Um, so I think that's another reason why, you know, historically it's been a value trap. Um, but, you know, similar to brick and mortar, and I've written about big lots and, um, you know, there's some a couple other retailers in there that aren't necessarily my ideas. I just really liked them. I agreed with the thesis, um, like Abercrombie. Um, I think COVID taught management teams a lot of different things of like, okay, here's where we can pull costs. You know, on the retail side, it's like, okay, we can switch to omni-channel. American Axle, it was probably a little bit more of like, okay, we get it. The market hates the leverage. We need to just get it down. And they're doing it. So slowly over time, American Axle's pay down debt. Like I said, I think once you're in the two to two and a half times range, you're sort of in the clear of any anything disastrous happening. So 
you know, you've got low, low leverage. I think the debt payout story is kind of over, um, or maybe it's much more limited. You've got a company that's now consistently generating free cash flow, um, and free cash flow now could actually be used to, you know, reward the equity. Um, and then you've got the cycle earnings growth behind it. So those three factors all coming together tells me that I think the stock can really work. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And obviously, the similarity between American Axel and then, you know, Stratech and Allison Transmission, your kind of auto names here is they're on the auto space, but obviously kind of different stories here. Um, you know, actually talk about deleveraging and, you know, hitting a lower leverage multiple. I'm not sure that's as much in play for Allison and Stratech, but yeah, I was wondering if you could talk to those two names and some of the differences between them versus Axel. Yeah. So, you know, Allison definitely is different. Um, it was, you know, it's a former LBO that IPO'd and then um, it's been just buying back or it's been paying down debt and buying back stock um, pretty consistently. I think, uh, you know, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's they've reduced share count at like a 10% CAGR over, you know, a long period of time. They've, they've reduced their share count by half since like 2012. Um, and so, but they've also realized like, okay, people are concerned about, you know, EVs and things like that. But the difference between Allison and like an Axel is like, Allison is just the number one leader in transmissions for, um, you know, like heavy duty trucks, but on the short haul side, buses, tanks, things like that, where it's like people are, it's, it's funny to me. And I wrote this up about AutoZone, which has been a nice returner since I wrote that one up as well. People are so afraid of EVs, uh, you know, coming in the next year or two that like, if you just own some of these stocks for three years, which kind of takes us back to the copy can portfolio of like why I'm saying it's a copy can. It's kind of like, if I believe what I actually believe, I should lock these businesses up for three years, let them generate the cash, open up the account three years later and look and see where they are. And if they haven't moved since that time, you know, either the thesis was wrong or they've significantly built up a ton of cash or the multiple is just compressed to even stupider levels. Um, and so, you know, Allison, you've got a clear market leader. You know, I think they have like, you know, their dominant share in a lot of their markets, you know, that, that translates to super high EBITDA margins around 35%, um, you know, 6% of sales is spent on CapEx. So, you know, really high free cash flow conversion. Um, and so, you know, I think the story of EVs, it's going to be a slow penetration story for automotive OEM already. I think, on the commercial market that they're dealing with, it's going to take even longer. And they just held like a technology days, you know, sort of painting the picture on how they're the leader in transmissions in that space. Um, they're doing a bunch of joint ventures and acquisitions to make sure, you know, they don't, you know, um, you know, get left behind or anything. <laughs> and so in the meantime, I think they're just going to continuously buy back stock probably at this rate. I think they can buy back, you know, 15% of shares per year. Um, and I'm okay with that. You know, I can sleep well at night knowing that management has done that every year and um, they're probably going to continue to do that. Yeah. For them, we, we've talked about this and you've written about it on your blog, but I mean, how much do you think the, the EV 
is coming thesis plays into this trading pretty cheap. And it seems like in general, like a lot of the auto space, and you mentioned this with AutoZone too, um, that's why you kind of see the discount there because people think EVs are the future and maybe some institutional investors are staying away as a result. 100%. I mean, it's the only thing people ask about on the call, even though management can talk about it 10 times. They, you know, they only know what they know currently right now and they can only pivot as much as they can as they are. Um, and yet it's the number one call, number one question on every call, every time. Yep. And, and I guess like the payoff here is if it happens, you know, three to five years later than perhaps people are pricing in. So wait and wait and see, but I, I, I'm willing to buy on the uh, idea that that's pushed out more than people expect. Right. I mean, there's some actually secular declining businesses out there that trade at a higher multiple than Allison. So there's like, you know, free sheet coded paper names that trade at, you know, six times. There are, um, you know, I don't know where Office Depot is, is just got offered to be taken out. But I mean, that's pro- that's a business that's under much more actual pressure in the near term than what, you know, Allison and some of these suppliers trade at, um, which is just, just boggles my mind. It reminds me too of, there were, you know, a couple of businesses, I won't name them, but it's kind of funny, like three years ago, maybe four years ago, every, no one could, you know, not talk about how autonomous cars were imminent. And, you know, I don't know if that was because Musk promised it in 2020, and that's definitely hasn't happened. We're getting closer, but it was almost like you couldn't own a, a PNC insurer, you couldn't own a automotive repair company. Um, you couldn't own an automotive paint company because when we have autonomous vehicles, you know, people aren't going to damage their car as much. You don't need to paint them again, like all that sort of stuff. If anything, the opposite has been proven true. Like the more and more autonomous or, or guiding systems that have been added to cars, the, there's actually been more wrecks than ever, like, you know, right before COVID. That makes the cars more expensive. So, you know, they get totaled more often. Um, It's just kind of, it's very interesting how the market can all get caught up in a very short-term narrative for a very, very long-term, you know, development. And it creates opportunities. For sure. Um, Let's talk a little bit about StrawTech to kind of round out this like trio of names. I got your October 22nd post pulled up from when they reported earnings. So, I mean, I guess your take here is uh, you know, sales down a little bit versus the prior year. Uh, seems like they were helped by Ford selling more F-150s, but some of the other tier one customers uh, got hit by the semi shortages. So as you say, short term results will be ugly, uh, but long term, this builds well for an elongated up cycle. Uh, so wanted to get your reflections on, uh, I guess this would have been Q3 earnings and then what the future looks like here. Yeah, I mean, in my, my sense, you know, that it kind of was what it like I expect it, you know, they have very high exposure to a lot of these trucks. Um, you know, what they make are locks, uh, steering columns, latches. And, you know, one of their big things is the new uh, tailgate latches for F-150 and Silverado trucks. Um, you know, with, with all the announcements that, uh, you know, these plants have been shut down, this was pretty expected in my mind and it didn't really change anything given StrawTech, you know, basically has a very clean balance sheet, very limited debt, very cash rich. Um, And so, 
you know, when they reported the stock at first, I think was down, you know, double digits. Um, and so that's why, you know, I sort of gave my view um, on the blog of sort of, um, you know, things you think are priced in typically are not. Maybe that's more true for micro caps. I mean, I think it definitely is true. Um, and so, but, you know, since that time, I think it's up uh, from that low, maybe like 20%. So it's now maybe up 10% from when they reported. So I guess bottom line, I think people are starting to understand this is a short-term issue. I think we should, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention like GM just announced for the first time since February, all of their plants are running now as the semiconductor issue is abating. So again, it sort of goes to these, like I'm sort of fading all the headlines of the supply chain issue could last, you know, to 2024 or something crazy. And these businesses are permanently impaired or something like that. I, I just don't believe that. And it just goes back to the, the former thesis that we were talking about with uh, American Axle, where in reality, the it probably means we've got a long, uh, many years of growth ahead of us. Yeah. Uh, one closing thought on Stratech I was going to mention is uh, I'm looking at investor relations right now. So I think we talked about this a while back. Like they don't actually have uh, earnings calls. Um, you do get financials and like some other data points. I think this is true for Cato too, if I'm not mistaken, which is also in the, the coffee can portfolio. Yep. Um, I know like I've had a little trouble getting comfortable with that. Maybe I, I over-index on seeing the quarterly report and like seeing the, the Q&A. Um, how, I mean, what are your thoughts in general on that? Like, is this a thing that concerns you or are you able to kind of just make do with, you know, I think one shareholder letter and maybe some other conferences they do throughout the year? Yeah, I mean, I would say typically I do like earnings calls. I Whenever I ramp on a new name, I read basically every earnings call I can get my hands on. It, it takes a long time, but it lets you know, you know, how the management team was reacting during many periods of time. Um, and that is, you know, a piece of it, but I don't know if there's much that they would say based on what I know of others in the, the market that would really change my mind. They do have a pretty decent, you know, Q and K. The, uh, you know, there is the annual shareholder letter where, you know, I basically got what I needed to know on CEO basically called out that he thought the stock was cheap. Um, and so on one hand, I've, I've tried to develop as an investor, you know, a lot of times, do I really need to have like an expert network call on this or things like that? Or do I already know the answer? I'm just trying to have someone tell me exactly uh, that I need to buy the, the stock or sell the stock. <clears throat> and so I'm trying to develop as an investor when it's like, you know, when you're 90% there, you know, I think my intuition has proved uh, out pretty well in already so you know i'm not too concerned about that honestly gotcha yeah that, that helps on my end um, i want to pivot the conversation a bit to the second half of the uh, value portfolio which would be retail so i think this there's a lot of differences here between this and the auto space like the biggest one being that the semi shortage and when that will get sorted out isn't really an issue i, I suppose you could say there are some you know, puts and takes with supply chain and retailers. And, you know, the issue used to be Delta variant, but that's kind of cleared up. Uh, but in terms of sentiment, I think it's probably a little different. Like, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch is at like a five-year high right now. Um, so clearly sentiment's a little bit better on that. 
Um, but yeah, what are the opportunities you see in retail right now? And what is the market missing in terms of expectations? Like why could results be a little bit better than what's being priced in? Okay. So that, that I, you know, I, I should say full disclosure, Abercrombie Fitch wasn't originally my idea. Um, and I would encourage everyone to go. There's a Vic write up on it. I've talked to some other people about it. Um, but I would just say, I really like the thesis of, you know, COVID taught a lot of these businesses, um, you know, a lot of lessons about omni-channel. So selling online, um, buy online, pick up in store. That's not necessarily Abercrombie, but more of a big lots transition. And then they also just have more cash than they've ever had on their balance sheet before, which just increases optionality. Um, so if you take Abercrombie, for example, still trades at a very low multiple, you know, sort of pricing in death for retail, when they actually have grown uh, sales over the past, you know, three or four years. Um, if you read their calls, they're pivoting with new brands, you know, partnering with some TikTok stars to launch a brand. I really like that idea. Um, and one other, you know, thing I really like is they have very short lease maturities. So if some of these stores are not, um, you know, generating free cash flow, they can close those stores and pivot them elsewhere. In the case of Abercrombie, it's kind of amazing how many flagships stores they have where you know the lease might be 11 million bucks a year and they're closing that because it's just not worth it um and then pivoting to omnichannel so i think there's a lot of tailwinds behind retail right now where a lot of them are positioned that way you have a very healthy consumer um uh you know about a third of the market cap is in um is in cash uh they have very limited debt and then I just think, per, like, you know, they're in a permanently different scenario on where profit margins are. Um, so, you know, if, if you rewind it about five years for Abercrombie, they had maybe like 8% EBITDA margins. You know, now they're around like 14% as they've repivoted their footprint um, and everything like that. So, uh, and then also, if you read the call, I mean, it basically seems like they're going to call some of their more restrictive bonds. So they're going to have very limited debt. And then they're just going to plow all free cash flow into buybacks and sort of repivoting the brand. So, you know, I'll admit Abercrombie isn't the biggest position for me. I think it is still what it is, but I, I, it just seemed like the, um, you know, upside was, was definitely there. Um, uh, it seemed like expectations were very low and all the signs that I could see were going to point to, you know, earnings were going to continue to grow and everything there. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I like that. Yeah, that one's probably, people are probably a bit more optimistic on that than some of the other ones. I mean, some other names you know, we had flagged to talk about. I mean, Cato obviously was pitched on Andrew Walker's podcast. So, yeah, I think a lot of listeners probably have heard about that. Like Big Lots, you've written a ton about and, and that one, I mean, sentiments all over the place. There have been some negative research notes because, you know, they quote like missed on the quarter. Um, I was going to leave this till a bit later, but I, I do feel like Bath and Body Works, you probably could move into this conversation because, you know, they do have a ton of retail locations. I don't know if it's a value name, right? Because it's not like it trades extremely cheap, um, but it is growing. And again, the market may be, uh, expectations may be too low for what eventually happens. Uh, I mean, among the retail ones, is there a specific one right now where you're like, this has the most opportunity and the lowest expectations? 
what I would put in the compounder bucket in like, I think it's still a little bit hidden is definitely Bath and Body um, where they also have significant cash on hand. So about, you know, 10% of their market cap is in cash. They're not that levered. Um, another scenario where the CEO is basically saying like, we're going to buy back a ton of stock. It does trade at around 12 times EBITDA. So it's definitely more expensive. But one of the things I wrote about was, um, in my view, this is a little bit of like a secret SaaS business where, you know, the, you know, typically people who buy these, you know, sense, smell, fragrance um, products over time as they use them, um, you, you know, you have to typically replace them. Again, uh, Bath and Body <laughs> has embraced the omni-channel. So that really took off during COVID. Um, and so their EBIT margins were like 28% last year. Obviously, you know, maybe some of that is one-time COVID impact um, and everything there. But I think you actually need a brand to sell fragrances because someone's, you know, sweater weather scent name online is going to be totally different than another one. And so you actually need a little bit of brick and mortar exposure to um, help develop that. Uh, and then you can sort of switch to omni-channel and, and sell online and, and brick and mortar. Um, and so in the post I try to get into, um, like if you looked at this business as a SaaS business, everyone you know in SaaS will say like, oh, what's my gross profit margin compared, compared to like the cost to acquire the customer? And I, it, it's just too tough in brick and mortar because brick and mortar is upfront cost first, and then you know the customers come in later, and so it's sort of flipped in, in that regard. But basically, like if you go and actually look at um, what Bath and Body discloses as far as um, you know how often a customer comes in, about three times a year, how much their average spend is, it seems like they're highly, highly focused on this. And they're even launching like a new loyalty program in multiple cities. Um, and, you know, they basically, they disclose some detail on, you know, a, a loyalty customer spends, you know, 30% more than a, a non-loyalty. They've only launched that in four different cities. You know, they plan to increase that. So the bottom line is like, I love fragrance businesses. I love beauty businesses because, you know, if the product works, customers are willing to pay for it and they're willing to come back. Like I said, there's this sort of, you know, it's not really razor, razor blade, but it kind of is. Um, and then the margins on this business and the cash flow are just, I feel like still underappreciated. And so that's why I think this one is just, I think it has a long runway for growth, especially as an independent business. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I think if, you know, I take a step back, why does the opportunity exist? You know, Victoria's Secret was tied to this business. So if you went six years ago, I'm going to kind of give the rough numbers, but if you went back six years ago, you know, the, the combined company did about 11 billion in sales and you fast forward six years later, it still does $11 billion in sales. But the, the issue, and then the, you know, there's operating income, maybe it's like, call it 3 billion and that's been flat or something. But the issue is, uh, you know, Bath and Body went from 
you know, very small to being, you know, the core piece about seven or eight billion of those sales, whereas Victoria's Secret has shrunk considerably over that time period. It even went negative EBITDA over time, I think even before COVID. So I think it has been a little bit clouded, uh, you know, being L Brands. And, you know, the balance sheet was in bad shape before. Now it's not. Um, they're splitting into independent companies. I really like management here. I do think it has a little bit of the brick and mortar taint. So, you know, that's going to be shifted now, too. Um, so in the end, I think uh, I, I think it's it's a good it's a good compounder, whereas the other ones are definitely more of like, do you really want to own this business for 10 years? Probably not. Bath and Body, I, I definitely could see myself owning it for a long period of time. Yeah, you kind of anticipated my next question, which was, why does this opportunity exist? Uh, you know, the L brand stuff you, you mentioned. One thing I was going to bring up is you hear this uh, bear thesis a lot with some of the names we've also looked at, kind of similar to the space in terms of just like home improvement, having a nicer home. Um, and I'm not talking about like Home Depot or anything. I'm actually talking about like a temper or a sleep number where it's just kind of like self care. Um, you know, the, the knock on that always is well, like everybody kind of, you know, refresh their, uh, their self-care lineup, uh, during COVID. So you can't really expect the same growth on a go forward basis. Um, on, on this name, like, you know, I, I definitely went to Bath and Body Works with my girlfriend a, a couple of times during COVID and prior to that, you know, I, I've always lived close to the Burlington and Natick malls. Um, you know, they have a number of, of locations there. So it's like, you always pop in there. So I wasn't surprised by their slide that the average, Consumer is going like two to three times a year, and that's kind of incrementally went up over time. Uh, but I still think that there's validity in that argument that like, you know, maybe people got all these candles and fragrances because they were feeling a little down because they couldn't go outside. <laughs> and like now that COVID has receded, uh, you can't really expect the same growth. Uh, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like going back number one to, I mean, are you going to buy mostly scents? I mean, they do sell candles. But are you going to buy, you know, the plug-in sense and then it's going to run out and then you're just not going to replace it? Maybe. But I do think a large portion of customers that they probably converted last year are probably going to, you know, replenish that over time as they see the empty, maybe not at the same rate. Um, you do also have a store growth story here. Um, and I just go back to, I mean, home home improvement spend has, has continued to remain strong. Um I think, you know, consumers are still relatively flush with cash. These are sort of like treats that, you know, are also seasonal. So people, you know, will come in, it's fall, I want a different scent than maybe springtime and things like that, that really bring people into the store. So on one hand, it does concern me a little bit about maybe they had a COVID bump, but in the long run, like I mentioned, I think they can grow, you know, free cash flow per share um, at good rates, just mainly because, they're just generating so much cash and have a, a ton of cash already um, that I think they're going to, you know, generate uh, nice free cash flow per share growth over time. Um, the other piece too, on you know, a lot of brick and mortar has been under pressure because of supply chain issues, and people think like, oh, these guys are going to miss sales because they won't have the product due to logistics, and you know, stuff is stuck in the port. Most of Bath and Body uh, Works products are actually manufactured in Ohio. So as people are looking for stocking stuffers and things like that over the next year, you know, I, I probably would worry more about 
peak earnings as we head into 22, uh, but mainly because like maybe they get just a massive surge in uh, sales this year. But again, then it just flips back to, okay, well, then the company is flush with cash and that just increases optionality more so than ever. So, you know, I don't really see myself selling it in the near term because of any of those, those reasons. Yeah, you nailed it on the growth on a per share basis, because that's also a question I, I was going to ask you. Like, I feel like a lot of these names we talk about, oh, is, you know, they're going to be less top line growth. But well, like if, if you have to consider the buybacks picture and, you know, dividends also are relevant here. Um, in, ter- in terms of return, like you're not necessarily banking it on as much organic growth to, to get you the EPS or free cash flow growth you want, on, again, on a per share basis. Um, I think right now, like, you know, you can talk more to the um, the buyback story, but it's like, you know, it's a it's a small dividend, right? It's like 15 cents, which is like, if you annualize it as 80 bips on, on the stock or thereabouts now, uh, but the buybacks are way more significant. Like how much of that do you see playing into your total return if you hold this for a couple of years? Well, like I said, I mean, they have 10% of their market cap in cash right now. I mean, I don't really, you know, they're they're very free cash flow positive. So I don't really see them like, you know, needing a bunch of that cash to help fund, um, you know, growth or anything like that. I think they're already doing that out of free cash flow. Um, and then, you know, from a debt perspective, you know, they could pay down some debt, but, you know, that just probably is accretive to the equity in some sense. Um, So, you know, if you take, you know, let me just take a look real quick and see, you know, what sort of free cash flow yield this is trading at. But, you know, I think, yeah, around like, um, you know, on my numbers, call it around an 8% free cash flow yield plus you've got 10% of the market cap in cash that probably tells you over many years they could you know buy back shares at this rate at about 10% a year um that seems pretty good to me um so you're sort of getting your return in that perspective um right there so uh you know I, I like that makes sense yeah, no, that that uh, I'm definitely interested in this portfolio in general. So I, I will pick up some of those coffee can names. Um, I do want to kind of end this conversation talking about some names we've both written about or, or talked about. Um, we kind of try try to do this rapid fire. Um, I want to start with National Cinemedia, which I think my subscribers are tired of hearing me talk about, but it, <laughs> it's nice to get a fresh perspective here. So I'll frame this by saying, you know, they just reported third quarter earnings. Like the the numbers on a trailing basis were quite poor. Um, but some of the go forward commentary was positive. I think a lot of people who have probably owned this stock are looking at Cinemark and IMAX and even AMC and going, if I had just owned those, I would have done significantly better. It's funny, in retrospect, we both owned the Cinemark bonds um, and those behaved exactly as we expected to. I think I think it was like a 2025 maturity and we bought it like 84 cents on the dollar and it, it quickly like surged back to par as the, the COVID environment got better. Um but National Cinemedia has trailed. I mean, I, I think you could argue it's because, adver- as they say, and as have, they have said on the call, advertising uh, for cinema. Um, so if you're an advertiser that is trying to get some of these uh, newbie or like pre-movie spots, um, that's lagging attendance coming back to theaters. So maybe that's why the stocks have trailed. But yeah, I'm interested to hear your take. Like, why has this done so poorly in 2021? And can we expect things to be better in 22? No, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the other problem is it's just like, uh, you know, it's a small market cap. You know, there's there are a little bit of like control 
issues given you know the theater's own stake. Um, I think it's off people's radar, um, and it is levered more than like a Cinemark for sure. Um, and it's not AMC, so it doesn't get the meme benefit. Um, but I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you know people are just going to have to see you know the whites of the eyes of like actual free cash flow, actual advertising dollars flowing back in before you know, this stock re-rates. So I don't really have much to add. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, totally fair. I mean, I remember what you said earlier about like micro caps. It can surprise you that some of the things you know about the company aren't necessarily priced in. I'm hoping that's the case for National City Media. I mean, I suppose one dat- positive data point I do have here is core point lodging where company was saying quarter after quarter, it's going to keep selling. I mean, there's a hotel rate for people who haven't heard about it. Uh, but they were very uh, clear on every single call that they were selling hotels above book value. Yet the, the stock at one point traded at like a 75% discount to book. Uh, so sometimes it, you know, the information you have on a micro cap can surprise you, but who knows here. Um, okay. Other one I want to talk about was Triton. That's another one I've, I've written about. I think you've, you've maybe covered it once on your blog, um, but that's another one where, I mean, I think center of the storm with the supply chain crisis, they're obviously benefiting from it. Um, I think for some of the analyst questions, the where the stock is now in terms of what people are trying to figure out is how long can they maintain their current earnings power? Obviously, they're a lessor, so they lock in leases and, and you know get the benefit of those for years to come. But I would say that the price on the stock right now doesn't necessarily reflect that people think they're going to get a continued bump um, from all this stuff that's happened in the last year and a half. Yeah, I mean... I- I think that's the really interesting thing where out of all the names, I think re-rating is very tough to bank on. I mean, it's you can't almost include it as a thesis, um, especially for a business that you know has a long history. There's a comp that trades in another, a similar multiple. But in Triton's case, I think we've seen a total paradigm shift based on 2015, 2016, as I put in my original post, was like worse than the financial crisis for them due to a confluence of factors that happened. I think that was short enough in their memory. And um, the same management team is still in place that they realized we need to position ourselves um, so that what happened back then, where a bunch of leases came off at the same time when steel prices were low and interest rates were very low. We were in an industrial recession and a shipping company went bankrupt. I think they realized like, okay, we need to push all these great leases that we're getting out uh, as far as possible. And so the leases that they're underwriting right now are, you know, 13 years. Um, I, you know, odds are supply chain does probably last into 22, uh, some of the supply chain issues. Um, So I just think as we look out and you know, we analyze these leases that they're putting on. I mean, they they're going to grow their revenue 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 earning assets about twenty to thirty percent this year. That basically means like a third of their earnings is sort of baked in till twenty thirty four, and then the rest of their fleet. You know, I'd have to go back and look, but I, I would say like probably over half of it. Is probably not until you know a 2025 event, um, and so you know people want to talk about like recurring revenue and and certainty of earnings. I mean, I don't know a business that is in a better position. Plus, you have a management team that is very good at capital allocation, um, and uh, you know basically puts out there on every call, 
here are the levers that we have to improve shareholder value. We can deploy it into growing our assets. We can buy back stock. We can pay a special dividend. I just think, you know, I just think they're not well appreciated enough. There is an investor day coming up. So I think, you know, that is a probably a good time to, um, you know, see, see what else they have to say. But, you know, I'm, I'm just good with the status quo story as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. On the capital allocation part, I've probably tweeted out that slide that I really like they include in their deck uh, every single quarter, which is like if they wanted to, they could increase the dividend to like a double digit yield. Um, you know, they could buy back whatever 15% of the float or they could do CapEx where they, they expect to get, you know, like 25% ROE or something crazy like that. Um, I, I think it's funny, like, you know, the CapEx thing is what's happened the last year or so. Um, I kind of wonder if they had done a more aggressive buyback or they did increase the dividends, I think, by over 10%. Uh, but had they been more aggressive on return of capital, I wonder if the stock would have caught a bid. Um, this is a, a strange tangent, but one thing that comes to mind is like, you know, we both owned RMR for a while now, and it, they always hinted that they were going to do a relatively large special dividend with their cash. They did it. And, you know, the, uh, obviously the stock went up by the percentage yep. of the special dividend, but like taking cash out, you know, helps your position. So it, it's kind of funny how, like, again, if you follow stuff and you know it's going to happen, like you can get the benefit of management doing exactly what they're going to say. So yeah, I wonder if that could happen with Triton. You know, they they do a one-time dividend or something or aggressive buyback and the stock goes way up. Yep, exactly. We'll see. Uh, fingers crossed. All right. I know we're, we're short on time, but uh, Turn was the final one I wanted to bring up. We talked with, about this on Twitter Spaces uh, a couple months ago. So this is a closed-end fund that now trades at anywhere from like 30 to 40% under NAV, depending on what you think NAV is right now. Super small micro cap. I mean, I think it's like 77 million bucks. Um, not a whole lot of people know about it. If you jump on one of their investor calls, like I've asked a question before, I think the you know, last time there are probably two people on, um, CEO is, is very <laughs> upset with the stock price. He calls it grossly mispriced. Uh, you know, he thinks it could be a $20 stock. It, it, they, they have a lot of like shots on goal. Um, but that's a whole lot of words. Uh, you know, you and I both looked at the last quarter, um, yeah, I guess like wh what kind of opportunity is this relative to other stuff you cover? I mean, I feel like it's kind of unique because it's not like a traditional company. Obviously, it's like an asset manager who kind of picks stocks for you and they have the remnants of a private portfolio. But yeah, where does this one fit in for you in terms of your level of conviction and how big a position you want to make it? Yeah, I mean, I do think that point you brought up is is pretty tough. Um, it is, you know, a closed in funds typically traded discounts. This one I do think is relatively wide, and I do think this management team is very solid. If you go back and look at their track record of, of actually picking good stocks, um, and I think you know microcaps are where you you know an active manager is definitely where you want to pay for it. Um, some of their history is really in special situations to create value, so I like that um, idiosyncratic growth. So you can argue, you know, the manager is is very much worth, you know, what it should trade at a nav on the public side. And then on the private side, I mean, if you go and look at the earnings transcript this quarter, you know, Kevin is basically like totally alluding there's a ton of SPAC money out there. Uh, they have a big private portfolio that's sort of just waiting for a bid. If they sold, you know, two of those assets, which we definitely think they will, Ag, Ag Biome and D-Wave, um, you know, that's basically going to probably close the, the discount to NAV. So that's probably, you know, like a 20 to 30% gain right there. Um, 
And then the other piece too, which is the, uh, you know, they're basically helping fund and seed SPACs where, you know, the SPAC market is definitely closed down, closed a bit, but they, they still got one done, Parabellum, um, where the, the SPAC economics, if they do a deal, I mean, they, they sort of disclosed, like they already, was it a, was it a two bagger or a three bagger just by? Yeah, it was um, like a $2 million investment that now is like, they've marketed at six. So yeah, gain of four, which again, as a $77 million market cap is like pretty substantial. I mean, yeah. I was going to say on that point, like how could, it seems like they could just rinse and repeat the SPAC playbook over and over. And honestly, yeah. you're getting that like for free, basically, right? It's not like they really had like operating costs that it cost them to do that. I mean, it sounds like Daniel Wolf like knew some of the guys who were part of the SPAC. You know, that's what you get in terms of like, the you know president of the company had a, a good relationship that allowed them to do this and you get four million dollars of, of <laughs> the gains as a result of that i think the problem is they they have to do a deal like so they have spec they probably have spec economics and founder shares and things like that um and really those pay out by completing a deal so ipo is one thing but actually closing a deal is another and that it, it's almost like it's two different transactions so ipoing is not that hard per se, but finding a transaction, which is probably going to be bigger than the cash that you have in the trust, which means then you need to go raise a pipe from other investors. Um, there's sort of deal close risk. Uh, and, but that if they, you know, close the deal, then it's a big deal for turn. And so I'm a little bit more cautious on the rinse and repeat, just especially where the SPAC market is. There's been so many blowups to from the original like heyday of last year. Um, I'm a little more cautious on it, but it is just like a free option for them. Yep. And, and I think it's a sign that this management team knows how to make money and find where the money is uh, and, and attack it. I'm hoping they have some window with the SPACs because even putting aside, can they originate more? I mean, they had spoken about Ag Biome, like is Ag Biome a billion dollar company? Maybe not yet. Could it be a billion dollar SPAC? Like, yeah, Kevin seemed to be a lot more confident in, in that. So, I mean, I think some exit, they're you know, kind of intent on making the public uh, securities and cash 100% of the portfolio. So I'm hoping yeah. like Ag, you know, Ag Biome goes out and gets realized that more than the value they have, like that immediately should bring the stock up. So, yeah, I mean, when I look out on this, like two or three years, it's like if it goes to 100% um, public and cash and not private anymore, it's like at that point, I don't really know what people are going to say in terms of why it's discounted to NAV. Like it, it there's no way in my opinion, it could be a 30% discount at that point. Yeah. I think that discount is probably too high. I don't know if it still trades at some discount, but you know, I don't, it does seem like it's pretty clear why the discount exists today. And it's like, people are basically ascribing no value to the private portfolio. Yeah. I, I, and I also hope uh, we had talked about this separately, but like, I'm hoping uh, them marketing themselves more aggressively next year <laughs> could do something. I mean, it, I've been impressed in the last year or so. I mean, obviously there's the meme stocks, but I think from following FinTwit, you almost can see that like when stocks get pumped there, there's like a palpable change in, in the price. Uh, and it's sad that's the case, but yeah, you know, marketing matters. Is it the price down or up? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, it's strangely a lot of them that seem to be down. But uh, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm following just the wrong. Just have a bad run recently. That's yeah. All. So so scratch that. Don't market yourself. Uh, 180 degree capital. Stay out of it. All right, buddy. Uh, has been an honor and a pleasure as always. Uh, any um, any closing thoughts or like what are you planning to write about next on on the blog? 
No, I mean, I appreciate you having me on again to talk about some of the auto thesis. That's one I've just been really hammering home. I'm, I'm currently looking for other ways to play that thesis that, um, you know, we have room to run on the automotive side. There's a couple of things I'm looking at. I'm not too prepared to comment on them yet. I think it's very early days, but, um, you know, I think I definitely think there's some more on the asset light marketplace positions where you know i've written up car auction services in the past they're also dealing with supply issues um that's definitely what i'm still very interested in but i think there's other names that are tangentially related that um look very cheap right now yeah the the auto stuff and semis and supply chain i, I mean i didn't mean to ask you like I've, I've been thinking about kind of how new cycles change over a year two years um, COVID is the most interesting where it's like Delta was something everybody talked about and I haven't heard it mentioned in months. Um, <laughs> supply chain and semis, you know, it does seem like the consensus is that go, that's a discussion topic for a year plus. Um, I mean, I, do you think that like, how long do you think we're going to be talking about this? Or like, how long is this creating a, a market opportunity? Well, the fact that, um, you know, GM just said the semiconductor issue and Bosch and basically the same day, both said the semiconductor issue is abating um and they're now running all their production facilities that tells me that you know they're ready to get back in line now a car obviously is made up of thousands of parts and so each part of the supply chain has to be you know in, in line and maybe that doesn't resolve itself i think it's going to take multiple many years to get inventories on the automotive side back to normal but from a semiconductor perspective of you look at how much investment is coming in and all that. And, you know, there's now protectionist around semiconductors. I'm very bullish on semis from here. Um, and maybe that's a discussion topic for later, but, you know, I wrote up Integris, which is sort of a picks and shovel play on that. Um, I think, you know, that is a very interesting where it almost doesn't matter about, you know, how much capacity is brought on versus demand, which even though demand is very strong, and capacity trying to catch up, you could see easily a, a scenario where, you know, the U.S. builds duplicative capacity, China's building their own capacity, Japan is building capacity, obviously Taiwan, um, just from a protectionist standpoint. So that is very interesting to me. Yeah, it seems like it could be a setup for a, a flipping of how things are today. I, I figured I'd poke the bear with this, uh, this final question. So like, you know, the big uh, inflation print came out, whatever it was like Wednesday and, you know, it was, was ahead of expectations, but again, a lot of the, the components in terms of like why it ended up the way it was that the two driving components, I think were like used car prices and energy or maybe new car prices and energy. So it's like, is that really inflation? I mean, I suppose at this point it's kind of semantics, but I know you have strong thoughts on this. So I'll see the floor to you here. <laughs> well, I mean, I think like everything I've just said is going to point to used car prices are going to normalize back to like normal, um, not like used cars don't go up in price. And it's not because, you know, oh, a bunch of money was printed. That's not the reason. It's clearly like a new car supply issue. And that's been a big driver of like the CPI number going up. Um, if you think about like historical inflation over a long period of time, like where has it been? What sectors has it been? It's been in the services sector because that's where Americans typically spend their money. Where is all the inflationary pressure happening right now? It's happening in the goods sector. Why is that? Because Americans were stuck at home and they there was a huge unleash of capital on goods. And now the supply chain is messed up. 
So it's all interrelated. Um, it's very clear to me though, that it's in the um, sort of, it's related to the supply chain, but it's related to the goods. Um, I really, you know, I struggle to see that the thing about inflation and like your hyperinflation, like a hyperinflationist out there, I'm not saying that prices have to go back down to where they were. That would be deflation. I'm just saying that the disinflationary pressures that we've seen over the past 30 years have not gone away. If anything, there's more capital than ever. And that will pressure the prices again from going up too, too far too quick. Um, and so people out there that are saying like, oh, we're going to see six plus percent sustained inflation. I just think, you know, we'll be looking back. Will it normalize in 22, early 22? Probably not. But I actually think, you know, the long-term bond probably has it right of, it's probably not going to be much higher over the very long run of where it's been historically. In the short term, yes. And is energy probably skewed to the upside even now still? Probably, yeah. Um, but I, I'm more in the transitory camp. I like it. We, we might have to call this podcast the only one where we push back on the, uh, the hyperinflation thesis. Uh, I mean, if you yeah. like, this is a good point, though. Like, if you ask me what keeps me up at night, it's definitely the bullwhip effect where, um, you know, let, let's go through the example of like a, uh, a pork producer is, is creating, you know, has the pork, kills, kills the pig, makes the product. They need to put it on styrofoam packaging and sell to the grocery store. All of a sudden, me as the consumer goes to the grocery store and they don't see any pork or very limited. And the grocery store basically has to raise price because there's more uh, demand and supply. Well, uh, let's say the pork supplier, you know, couldn't get the styrofoam packaging that he needed to supply the pork, but he had the pork. So what does he do next time? He orders three times as much more styrofoam packaging so that he's not caught without that supply so that he can serve the end customer. Well, what, what happens downstream is, you know, with all triple ordering and double ordering is you get this huge restocking effect. Um, and for people who don't know, I cover chemicals. So restocking and destocking happens, you know, in every couple of years for some of these individual chemicals. And what you see is a massive price run up as everyone is building inventory. And it's almost a weird psychological effect where people see prices going up. And so then they buy more to get in front of a future price increase. But then when prices start to shift and go down, they don't buy because they think they can buy it cheaper next month. And I'm, a, I'm actually afraid that's what we're going to see is what we're in right now is a huge restocking effect. It's the biggest restocking effect we've probably ever seen. It's on steroids. Um, and then that probably means on the other side, we're going to see a destocking effect that we've never seen before. Um, and that will probably be something that could actually threaten some of, some of the stocks out there that I look at. Um, and people forget there was a huge surge in commodities and things like that in the financial crisis because China unleashed a massive stimulus. It did not persist. And so I think we're kind of seeing something on similar veins, but again, it's on steroids because it's the entire world and it's very focused on the good sector. Um, and so it's totally messed up our supply chain. Um, 
So yeah, we could probably save that for an entire yeah. Well, when the de-socking event is about to happen, please throw a post on your blog telling me to sell <laughs> everything. Yeah. I mean, I honestly could see that bringing down the whole market. So that, that does scare me a bit. Yeah, yeah. All right, buddy. As always, right, man. Thanks, thanks for being on the pod. Me. All right, yeah, yeah have a good thank one. Thank you.